All right, we're in Genesis chapter 21 this morning. And as we think about our study so far, Abraham has sojourned in the land of Canaan, waiting for God to fulfill his promises to him for over a quarter of a century. And that promise, of course, involved becoming a great nation, the father of many nations, and a blessing to all nations on the earth. And for God to fulfill that promise, he has to provide for Abraham a land and a seed, a promise going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, so that he has descendants to occupy that land. At this juncture, uh, God has given Abraham and Sarah the promised son, really a miraculous son, Isaac. And for the most part, Abraham has lived in the land in peace, but he hasn't inherited one yard of it. And today's narrative revolves around a covenant and an oath by which Abraham acquired the first small piece of Canaan. It was a a covenant of peace between himself and a king named Abimelech, who was uh, the king of Gerar, the land of the ancient Philistines. Now, there have been three occasions in our study so far that uh, threatened the peaceful life of Abraham. And you remember that two of them were really a result of his own failure of faith. And one of them was to rescue his nephew Lot. When Abraham went down into Egypt the first time, he didn't really ask God if he should go there. He didn't worship God while he was there. There was no altar built. And he told the, the, uh, the Pharaoh that his wife was his sister. And so he took her into his harem, and God had to intervene and deliver Sarah. And when that happened, of course, they went back to where they were supposed to be in the promised land. Then the occasion came up where the kings of the east chastised the kings of the plain where Lot lived. Lot was captured by them and his goods, and uh, Abraham chased after these five kings and defeated them in Damascus and brought back Lot and all his goods. So he really kind of achieved uh, some international fame through that action. And then finally, as uh, the uh, previous chapter indicated to us, he repeated that sin of saying that Sarah was his sister, and this king Abimelech took her into his harem. And you remember that uh, God came and warned him by a dream, and uh, he returned Sarah quite quickly. Now, we come to chapter 21, the last part as we read earlier today. We see that this man Abimelech seeks to have a treaty with Abraham because he knows the Lord is with him in everything that he does. So this is a wise move on his part, and Abraham agrees to the, uh, the covenant. The book of Proverbs tells us that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So our story this morning is a lesson in pursuing peaceful relationships And it ties in with a lot of New Testament admonitions as well. So let's ask the Lord's blessing as we learn lessons from this portion of Scripture. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful today that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And we're thankful, Lord, that that peace being shed abroad in our hearts gives us a love not only for you, but for others. 
And so we pray you'd help us to realize we need to be in right relationship with other people as much as we possibly can. And we ask you to remind us of this lesson as we look at what took place uh, in Abraham's life in this situation. Bless your word to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first thing I want you to observe this morning is in verses 22 to 24, and that is that overtures of peace from others should be accepted quickly. And we have the story here of Abimelech coming to seek peace with Abraham in verse 22. And he said, it says here, it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham. All right, so what's the time frame? Well, it says it came to pass at that time. And so we have to uh, go back to the previous chapter, uh, the previous story in this chapter, and we find that this is in conjunction with the birth of Isaac. Now, it could be uh, anywhere in a time period from when Sarah was returned to Abraham to the birth of Isaac to the weaning of Isaac. I think it was probably sometime in that uh, particular period. And uh, uh, I think uh, that there probably was strained relationship uh, between the two men as uh, God came and told uh, King Abimelech, you're a dead man if you don't return Sarah to her husband. Uh, and he was quite angry and upset with Abraham. But now things are wanting to get back together. And it's kind of uh, interesting that the king Abimelech uh, comes to him with his commander, who is titled Phicol. Now, remember that Abimelech is likely uh, a, a title rather than a name. And Phicol also is likely a title standing for the commander of his army. And for him to come to Abraham with his general would possibly be a threatening type of situation, reminding Abraham that uh, Abimelech has a large enough nation to support an army. And uh, although Abraham's a brave man, he has 300 servants who could fight, he might not be a match for them. But as we look at the story, it appears that Abraham is highly regarded and seems to actually have the superior position as this arrangement is made. Now, Abimelech is seeking peace, so that demonstrates that he has a great deal of respect for Abraham, the prophet of God, and he realizes that God is with him in everything he does. That's what he says here, and really that's probably the reason why he wants to make this agreement with him. And uh, God, uh, remember that uh, in that encounter with Sarah, that God came in that dream and uh, the fear of God was put in his heart and the very next morning he returned Sarah. Uh, He's also witnessed that Abraham is materially blessed and if he's aware of what happened a few years ago when Abraham with just 300 servants defeated the coalition of five kings and their armies, uh, he knows that he would be a formidable foe as well. So God's with him. Uh, Other people have suffered because of him. And so now he wants to make a treaty of peace. Uh, It's interesting also that although he wants to make this treaty, look at how he puts it here. 
Verse 23, now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me. Now one other thing he knew about Abraham was that he wasn't exactly honest. He wasn't exactly trustworthy. So now he wants to be sure that Abraham in the future does not deal falsely with him. So he's using his head here. He's a wise man. And he wants to be sure that he's protected, his son's protected, his posterity is protected down the road. And it's also interesting that Abimelech wants Abraham to treat him now in the way that Abimelech treated Abraham. Look at what he says in verse uh, 23. But that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me. And the term kindness there is the Hebrew word hased, which means covenant loyalty and is often translated tender kindness in the Old Testament. It's also used of God's loyal love with those uh, he has entered into covenant, which would be the nation of Israel, would be Abraham and his son. So this conveys to us the sincerity with which Abimelech approaches Abraham. Now, Abraham responds affirmatively in verse 24 and simply says, I will swear. Now that verb and the number seven that we'll see here in a few minutes, they come uh, from the same Hebrew root, which is actually the last half of the name Beersheba. It's Seba, which can either mean oath or seven. And we're going to look at that a little bit later on uh, because both of them are used three times in the passage and the name Bathsheba or uh, Beersheba also occurs three times in the passage. Three is an important number in the word of God. Now, Abraham is quick to respond to the overtures of Abimelech. Now, Abimelech has already granted to Abraham the permission he needs to sojourn his land uh, so he can feed his uh, cattle and his sheep and also provide water for them. And this becomes a source of conflict because when you have huge herds like both of them did, you're bound to have squabbles over pasturing areas and watering holes. And this can uh, uh, be a great lack of peace, if you will. So an agreement not to harm each other and to pursue peace was something that would be beneficial to both parties. Now, let's stop for a moment and uh, make a couple of applications. <clears throat> when someone approaches us with the pursuit of peaceful relations in mind, we should be quick to respond positively as Abraham did. And you can probably think of situations in your life where that has happened. I remember years ago in my first ministry, uh, a retired local minister came to me and reprimanded me after some uh, biblical statements I made in a town meeting. And this is back when uh, all that nuclear stuff was going on uh, in the 80s. And we obviously had political disagreements. But years later, he came to me kind of unexpectedly, and he apologized for his behavior. Of course, I accepted that. Uh, but sometimes lost people may have a squabble with you. Saved people might. Family people might. 
But when people want to get right with you, you need to uh, open the door and let them do that. We ought to be quick to receive someone's apology or their attempts to regain peaceful relationships, and that's often going to involve our forgiveness in a situation. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, Peter asked the Lord Jesus, how often should he forgive a brother who sinned against him? And he mentioned the number seven. Well, Jesus responded by saying, I say not to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So there really is no uh, particular number that we're looking at. We're always open for reconciliation. Now, let's go on to the second idea here, the second thought, verses 25 to 27. And that is this, peace with others involves resolving disputes properly. Abraham was ready to make a peace treaty, but he had something uh, in his mind that might stand in the way. And so he confronts Abimelech about a situation, about a problem that if it was, uh, wasn't resolved would prevent peace from happening. Verse 25 says, Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. All right, so he rebukes Abimelech over this situation, and that indicates, first of all, to us that Abraham no longer had a fear of Abimelech. That was the reason he lied about Sarah being his sister, but now he actually confronts him about this issue. So it seems to me that he's getting to the point where he's going to trust the Lord in these times of possible conflict and not his own planning. And the verb to rebuke here is used in a legal sense, and it's similar to lodging a complaint to determine what is right. And in this situation, the servants of Abimelech had forcefully seized, that's the idea behind the word to seize here, a well that was dug by Abraham. And again, here we have this conflict over pasture lands, very serious matter because the livelihood of your flocks depended upon this, these watering places that were uh, from place to place in the area. And so no peace could really be achieved uh, or maintained under those circumstances the situation needed to be re- resolved. <clears throat> now, Abimelech, in response to what Abraham brings up, uh, declares his innocence. He says in verse 26, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. <clears throat> well, that's uh, that's possible. We kind of wonder uh, if maybe he did know that, but he says that he didn't know it, and he would have had large holdings uh, of many different types of commodities and may not have been aware about this squabble, which was really kind of the edge of the Philistine territory. And so he claims to be innocent in the situation, and uh, Abraham accepts that, and he begins to make preparations for the covenant to take place. He took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant, made an agreement. All right, so the animals uh, were given for the situation. Some believe that they may have been to reciprocate the large gift that Abimelech gave to Abraham when he returned Sarah, kind of like a 
I'm, I'm sorry for this whole situation. But likely these were the sacrificial animals and the one who was the superior in these relationships would usually be the one who gave the animals. So it seems like Abraham has got the, uh, the upper hand and the respect of Abimelech. Now this is probably what would have happened. They would take those animals, they would slay them, and then they would have them. And they would make two rows, and each half would be on either side of each other, making a pathway in between. And this was a symbol when these men passed through that path that if either one of them did not keep the stipulations of the sacrifice, this is what would happen to them. So it was a very serious uh, covenant that they were making with each other. And they were on equal footing, Abraham perhaps being the senior partner. And all of this is really kind of a display of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in chapter 12, where uh, great respect is given to him in the eyes of a foreign king, the king ensures that he will be blessed because he's blessing Abraham. And the Lord said back there that those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. So we see, again, God's promises being fulfilled in the life of Abraham. And by way of application, peace in the church has got to be maintained in a similar fashion to this. Whatever may cause a problem between two people has to be confronted biblically to maintain peaceful relationships. Jesus instructed us on this matter in Matthew chapter 18 when he said, if your brother offends you, then you need to go with him and you need to go to him and deal with that particular problem or issue. We can't wait and let bad feelings brew We cannot go to someone else and try to get them on our side. We can't talk about the situation behind our brother's back. That wouldn't be right. So as hard as it may be, we need to go to that person and deal with whatever the issue is that's bothering us. And in my own experience, nine times out of ten, it's better or will work out uh, not as badly as you think that it will. And that's the way God says we should do things. There are also other exhortations in the New Testament about maintaining right relationships, especially with God's people. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, not just other Christians, but with all men. In Romans 14, he wrote, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which we may edify or build up another. And the author of Hebrew writes in chapter 12, Pursue peace with all and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. So over and over and over in the New Testament, we have admonitions to do what Abraham did way back in the book of Genesis, promoting peace by properly resolving issues that may prevent it. Now, thirdly, we see something else from this passage, and that is peace with others should be perpetual in nature. Uh, They shouldn't be short-lived. So a number of things signify to us that this peace treaty was to be permanent in nature. 
So what signifies that perpetual nature of the covenant? Well, first of all, back in 23, Abimelech's desire is for it to extend to future generations. His sons and his son's sons, his posterity, way down the road. So he's not just looking out for himself, uh, how many years he may have, but also for his sons, his grandchildren, and even farther down the road than that. <clears throat> they also swore an oath before the Lord. He wanted Abraham to swear, verse 23. Abraham says, I will swear. And then down in verse um, 31, the two of them swore an oath. Now, we may think, well, so what? But taking an oath in Old Testament times was very serious business. Uh, it later became uh, a law of God. It was better never to swear an oath than to swear one and not keep it. That would put you under the judgment of God himself. So when an oath was given, it was perpetual in nature regarding whatever stipulations were involved in that covenant. Now, in this agreement of peace, there really are only two stipulations, that Abraham and Abimelech would live together in peace, not only in this generation, but those to come, and that the well of Beersheba belonged to Abraham, and it too would become a witness of a permanent nature. So this agreement uh, to have peace wasn't really set in time. It was for generations to come. Now, Beersheba becomes Abraham's first possession in the land of promise. You remember that for over a quarter of a century, it could be up to 30 years by now, he's been a sojourner in the land of Canaan. He started out up in Shechem. He went to Hebron. He now comes to Beersheba. He's been in the land of the Philistines. He's been down in Egypt even. And he he's had extended stays in these geographical areas, but none of them were purchased and none of them were given to him. And the land he's in now, he's there by permission of King Abimelech. So the witness of this well becomes doubly important. Now Abraham set aside seven ewe lambs as a sort of a rider in addition to the covenant of peace. And Abimelech doesn't really understand why he did that, and so he inquires as to the meaning. And Abraham stimulates here, uh, stipulates here that these animals are a witness that the disputed well was dug by Abraham, and therefore it belongs to him in perpetuity. So this became another permanent part of their agreement signified in the naming of the well, which appears three times. Now, Beersheba has two meanings related to this whole event. The term beer means well. Later on, we're going to see some other wells that were dug and some other problems that came up. And Seba is the root word that we explained earlier that can either mean seven or an oath. So Beersheba means the well of the seven or the well of the oath. And every time someone would go there, understanding the background, would realize 
this is an indication that this is a well that was dug by Abraham. It belongs to him. And so in a sense, it becomes a down payment of God's promise that his offspring will inherit the land which will later become Israel. So uh, the Lord's promise was a perpetual one as well. Now, again, when peace is made between people or groups, it ought to be permanent in nature. It ought to be perpetual. It ought to be lasting. When forgiveness is granted, it's unconditional. When agreements are made, peace should rule not for a period of time, but really for all of time. We don't hold grudges. We don't take vengeance. We don't withdraw our friendliness and our love. Our attitude is that we will promote peace at all costs. And also, uh, this was established by an oath, but it's very clear in the New Testament, our word should be our oath. So we shouldn't have to uh, uh, you know, sacrifice animals and then swear an oath upon that to make a covenant. Our word should always be true. Our, our word should be an oath. We should not have to swear before God that our words of forgiveness are true and, la- uh, and lasting or that our commitment to peaceful relationships is not real. So it's something that should last. Now, this also reflects God's permanent promises to us in regard to peace. Jesus said in John 14, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And then in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Paul reminds us, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the peace that God gives in salvation is unearned, it's by grace through faith, Therefore, it's permanent in nature. Even when we sin or we fail in faith, God has still granted us that peace. And by the same token, within the church, Christ creates permanent bonds of peace that should be maintained. Jesus told his disciples, have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. And Paul wrote, be at peace among yourselves. So these are present tense exhortations. That means that they're ongoing, they're perpetual, and we are to be obedient to those. So again, when uh, peace needs to come, the attitude in any agreement should be one that's long lasting. Finally, this morning, let's take a look at the last few sentences here. Verse 32. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So here we see that peace with others promotes worship, and witness. So as a result of this peace treaty, Abraham now uh, has the freedom to the land. He can worship the Lord as he pleases. And in that worship, he will become a witness to God's everlasting care. And when Abimelech returns, the covenant is completed. 
Abraham does two things. First of all, he plants a tamarisk tree in the place where the covenant is made. Now, this tree, we believe, is a type of evergreen tree. And uh, an evergreen tree really is kind of a symbol of uh, something that lasts forever. And it would be a symbol then of the permanence of that covenant, but mainly it displays Abraham's faith in the Lord. Even an evergreen uh, would need a permanent supply of water to survive in that region where it's arid, where it's wilderness. That's where Beersheba was built. And Abraham believed that God would sustain him and that tree for future generations. It was a symbol of his faith, his trust, and God's eternal care, if you will. And centuries later, this place became a town that was a marker of the southern border of Israel, even as we have the phrase, from Dan to Beersheba. As a result of that covenant then, Abraham trusted the Lord that he would continue in this land in peace. He's got a down payment now, and that's just a surety that one day God will fulfill his word, even though it's centuries down the road. And then he called on the name of the Lord, which was typical of Abraham when he was right with God. He would build an altar and he would worship God. So that signifies that this becomes a place of worship. Uh, uh, He's at peace with people in the land. He's able to do this. He doesn't have to hide. And he's free to worship the Lord. And as he does that, he becomes an open witness to that nation and other nations around him of the eternal God being with him. And here's another name for God, the everlasting God, the eternal God, only time it appears in the book of Genesis. And what does it do? Well, it indicates that God is not confined to time. He has existed and he always will exist. He'll ever be present to protect Abraham, provide him with peace, and even make potential foes his friends rather than his enemies. And when we're at peace with others, it promotes worship and it promotes witness. If you're not right with another brother in Christ, or even someone who's not saved, whether you realize it or not, it affects your worship. If we're not right with others, if we're not forgiving, how can we say we are right with God? The Lord Jesus taught this in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you remember that one? This person uh, is called in by his master. He has a debt that cannot be paid back and it's forgiven him. Then he goes out to someone who owes him a few days wages and he practically strangles that person to get the money out of him. And the Lord says, if that's the way you are, uh, you you can't be forgiven by the Lord either. So it's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If you bring your your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift there, uh, go and get right with your brother, and then come back and worship God because it affects your worship. It also affects our witness. If we are portraying, uh, not portraying the love of God in relationship to other people, uh, if we won't promote peace with them, then how can we get others uh, to come into the peace of God when we're not obeying his word? 
So it's affecting our worship and our our witness out there in the world. Now, all of these have applications to us, but let's close with a few questions. First of all, going back to verse 23, and Abimelech's view of Abraham, that God was with him in everything he did. Do people who observe your life see such a difference that they could say, God is with you in everything you do? Or would they have something else to say? Secondly, are you at peace with others? Do you have unresolved problems with someone? Are you withholding forgiveness? Are you holding a grudge? Are you harboring a wrong attitude? So if that might be the case, why aren't you pursuing peace with that person as the Lord commands us? It affects your worship and it affects your witness. And if we're not promoting peace between ourselves and others and helping other people do the same thing, then we're living in disobedience to the clear teaching of the word of God. This is just an Old Testament example of it. The New Testament is even stronger in its admonitions. So a wise Christian will understand these things and make any necessary amends. Let's ask God's blessing as we close. Our Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful today for the word of God and what it teaches by example in the Old Testament. We're thankful, Lord, that Abraham was open to making an agreement with Abimelech when he came to him, that that uh, established peace between them and enabled Abraham to freely worship you in the wilderness. It also provided the opportunity for him uh, to uh, be encouraged about your promise of that land. And so, Lord, we're taught today that we, too, should be in right relationship with other people, whether they be saved or lost, to do all we can uh, to walk in harmony with each other, that um, our worship of you might not be ill-affected and our witness of you in the world may not be looked down upon. So, Lord, help us to be obedient to your word today if there's uh, any area of life where we need to apply it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you.